So what an interesting passage. And I want to encourage you that this passage for me opened up the reality of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to abide in Christ, to live the gospel life. So of all of the sessions we have together, uh, this is the one that I put the most emphasis on, the most importance on. Now, what I want to do quickly before I dig into this text, if you go back in your booklets to page 9, I want to deal briefly with what's behind the waltz. The reason why we call it the waltz is not only because there's three steps. What are the three steps? Repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. If you know uh, Johann Strauss, the waltz king, if you know uh, Tchaikovsky and all of the waltzes that he wrote, it's always that. If you've ever seen any Christmas movies, there's the Christmas waltz that is a famous song. So behind every waltz, there's music. And I want us to understand that God is constantly playing waltz music in your life. So I want you to think with me now. I want you to get very practical. On the bottom of page 9, I want you to ask yourself, what are you most frustrated with in your life right now? I want you to write it down. No one's going to see this. This is your book. You can be honest. God already knows it. What in your life are you most frustrated about? It might be a circumstance. It might be a situation. It could be a relationship. It might be something God's revealed in His Word about a besetting sin or weakness. It might be an element of brokenness in your life that you're longing to experience some wholeness. But what is it in your life right now that you are most frustrated with? Now, we need to understand God is absolutely sovereign over every minute detail of our lives. Sovereignty is not a characteristic that knows of any degrees. God is either sovereign or He's not. There's no such thing of saying, wow, God was really, really, really sovereign there. There are no degrees. God is completely in control or He's not in control. God orchestrates everything in life, or He is not sovereign. That is, one of the, that is one of the deepest, largest questions you have to come to grips with in your own life. Is God sovereign, or is He not? Scripture, however, is very clear. God is absolutely sovereign. 
That means he is sovereign over every event and detail of our lives. That means God is orchestrating circumstances and situations and relationships in our lives in order that we might see our brokenness and our sin so that we might be transformed by the power of the gospel and be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, and 29 couldn't teach this more clearly. God causes some things to work together for good? No. God causes all things to work together for good. To those who are called according to His purpose. And then it says, those whom He called, He predestined. Predestined. To destine beforehand, sovereignly, to become conformed to the image of Christ. So God is constantly orchestrating circumstances. He is constantly leading the orchestra of the details, relationships, circumstances, and situations of our lives. He is constantly playing waltz music. And then we have a choice. Are we going to dance the bunny hop? Are we going to reduce the Christian life to one step? Are we going to engage in the American Texas two-step, much of which is Christless? Or are we going to recognize it's waltz music? So the music is playing. The music are the circumstances, situations, relationships of our lives, the elements of our brokenness that God exposes. Now, in a waltz, there are always dance floors, a ballroom, and the dance floors of our lives are the various areas of our lives where God is orchestrating the waltz music. It might be your singleness. It might be your marriage. It might be your parenting. For my oldest son and his wife, it was their infertility. And now it's their adoption of three children. For me, it was the dark night of the soul at one time. The point is, God is sovereign over everything that's happening. You are not a victim. What is happening in your life is not random. It's orchestrated because the God in heaven is pursuing you in love. we got to understand that. It's not that He doesn't love you. It's that He does love you. And Satan tries to get us con to can be convinced that God is holding out on us and God is not being kind on us. You realize that Satan has not changed any of his tactics since Genesis 3? He's not changed. What, what was Satan's tactic with Eve? God's holding out on you. 
Because God knows if you eat of the fruit, you're going to be like Him. You can't trust God's heart as good for you. Satan has not changed his tactics, and he's doing the same thing to those of us in this room. We're looking at the difficulties and the trials and the brokenness and the sin and the suffering, and we're concluding because we're listening to Satan, God's holding out on you. God doesn't love you. God is not good. God can't be trusted. When the Spirit of God is saying just the opposite. I know this is painful, but if you trust God and waltz to the music, you will find God's Spirit filling you with supernatural power, and you will be transformed as He conforms you to the image of Christ. So we've got the music. What music is playing in your life right now? We all have it, okay? There's nobody here that can say this is irrelevant. There is music playing in your life right now. And I would say begin with that that is causing you the most pain, the most frustration, the most anxiety. That's the waltz music in your life. And God doesn't want us to stay frustrated and anxious and angry. God wants us to waltz. The dance floor is the particular area of your life. It could be vocation. It could be finances. It could be parenting. It could be singleness. Those are all the different dance floors. We might be doing well on one dance floor, but on another dance floor, life could seem like it's falling apart. So, the dance floor for the Israelites in Numbers 21 was their circumstance of being tired of wandering in the wilderness. Let me set the context for Numbers 21. You need to know this is at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Remember why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? In Numbers 13 and 14, before the wilderness wanderings, God told Moses to send one leader, one spy, from each of the tribes of Israel. Caleb and Joshua were two of the spies. Then there were ten other spies. The twelve spies went into the promised land, and they were to bring back some fruit and they were to bring back a report. They brought back the fruit, and it was amazing fruit. But 10 of the 12 spies, not Joshua and not Caleb, but the other 10 said, yes, it is a great land, but the people there are huge. The, the people there lived in fortified cities. And they're massive warriors. We can't take the land. Caleb and Joshua said, whoa, yes, there's great fruit. And yes, the people there are large and they do live in fortified cities. 
but by God and His power, we can take the land. Well, the people became frightened and anxious. They were filled with fear and unbelief, and they rebelled against God. They didn't listen to Caleb and Joshua. So God said, okay, you are going to wander in the wilderness one year for every day the spies were in the land. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this entire generation dies. That's the consequence of your unbelief. By the way, God is a God of grace, but make, make no mistake, there are consequences to sin. For the Christian, God never turns his back. That's something we're going to talk about later on. But make no mistake, even though grace is true, there are huge consequences to sin. You break God's commandments, there's going to be consequences. It's not because he doesn't love you. It's just there's consequences to sin. So then, Numbers 21 is at the end of the 40 years. The entire generation who rebelled has died. Now their children are the ones who have taken over. And here's the question of the book of Numbers at this point. Will the people of God be any different? All the sinners have died off. Have they? And what we learn is that sin is a universal, timeless problem. And the only thing that will ultimately cause it to disappear is the second coming of Christ. Where the new heavens and the new earth are set up. And there'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Listen to me. Waltzing isn't going to fix you. Don't think that waltzing is the silver bullet that's going to make everything better. Waltzing is simply how broken people with broken lives live in a broken world until Christ returns, all the while experiencing substantial healing and wholeness. Waltzing is transformational, but don't look at it to fix you. Nothing will fix you except the new Jerusalem. So now, with all that as a background, we're ready to see the waltz in Numbers 21. So go, if you're not there in your book, go to page 13. And notice I say there that the, the model is the waltz, as he, Jesus is the waltz partner, by the way. You don't have to get it all right. Jesus is the one who leads us in the waltz. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to get it right. I remember when, when our daughter Hannah was just a little girl. She's 32 now and has her, one of her own children, and she's pregnant with their second. But, you know, you do this classic daddy-daughter dance, right? We're, we're at a wedding reception. I had just done a wedding, and she puts her feet on my feet, right? And, and she's on my feet. And I'm the one that's dancing. She's, she's just on my feet. And she thought, I'm dancing with Daddy. Well, that's the way it is with the waltz. We just put our feet on Jesus' feet, and He leads us in the waltz. You don't got to get it right. You don't need to figure it out. The pressure's off. 
we learn the steps because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Deep breath. For a performance junkie like me, that's huge because I want to get it perfect. And I won't think it's going to work unless I get it perfect. Jesus helps us in the waltz. Okay, it all begins with the music. Do you have that situation in your mind? Do you have a a situation you're frustrated with, you're anxious about, you're angry about? Because clearly in this text, Israel's angry, right? They're tired of wandering in the wilderness. Now they need to take the long way around Edom. They're, They're tired of the manna, right? Every time they want water, God's got to do it supernaturally from a rock. Can you imagine complaining about that? I mean, God, every time we need water, you've got to do it. We hate being dependent, don't we? And yet God loves to put us in positions of absolute desperate dependence. You know, they don't tell us this stuff when we're first converted. (laughs) It's probably, probably wise. How many of us would sign up? But it's an exciting life. Okay, so... If you go to page, uh, the next page, which is, what page is that? Page 14, you see a painting. This is a painting in the Russian Museum in St. Petersburg. Uh, this is a really cool story. I was able to lead uh, several couples, young married couples, to Christ uh, one of my trips. I've been to Russia a couple dozen times uh, doing ministry there. And uh, in the Russian Museum, this, this painting right here is, my goodness, it's as big as this whole wall here. Um, Only turn it horizontal instead of vertical. So it's huge. And if, I hate snakes. I hate them. I checked before I came. There's only one venomous species in England. It's called the adder. And did you all know this? And uh, it's actually not extremely poisonous, which is wonderful. Okay, I'm from Alabama. Every species of poisonous snake in America can be found in Alabama. We live, we have a little farm at the bottom of a mountain. My wife loves the country. And she'll look out our front window and she'll see the woods and She's thinking, oh, it's so peaceful. It's so beautiful. You know what I'm thinking? Snakes! There's a ton of snakes staring on us right now. Rattlesnakes, copperheads, coral snakes, uh, water moccasins. Those are the four species of snakes in all of America, and we have them all in Alabama I will not go hiking in the woods unless it's below 40, 40 Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is, maybe closer to zero uh, Celsius. Why? Because I know they're sleeping, right? They're not going to hurt me if they're asleep. But in the middle of summer, when it gets up to 33, 34, I am not going to go hiking in the woods. Lori's going to have to go by herself. I hate snakes. So, so this painting destroys me, right? 
So I take these couples who are brand new Christians. There's no Bibles at this point in Russia. There's no follow-up materials that I can disciple them with. But there's all these biblical paintings. And I was able to show them Jesus in all the biblical paintings. And here you say, where's Jesus? Well, he's the symbol of the bronze serpent. In John 3, you know what the most famous verse in all of the Bible is among the unbelieving world? It's John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who believes in him should never perish with everlasting life. But you know what's right before John 3, 16? Yeah, John 3, 14 and 15. I understand the numbers. But do you know what it is in John 3, 14 and 15? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Interesting. The most famous verse in the entire Bible is preceded by a reference to this very passage. Look, you want to understand the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Find Jesus in every single passage. That's how you read the Bible. If you're not seeing Jesus in every passage of Scripture, you can be sure you're not interpreting Scripture properly. Remember the road to Emmaus and the disciples in Luke 24? Uh, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. There's disciples, and it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he pointed out to them everything on how the Scriptures pointed to him. Jesus said in the Gospel of John to the Jews, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but all of them point to me. Jesus is in Numbers 21. He's the whole point of Numbers 21. So, I want you to go through the story with me. The people have waltz music playing in their lives. They're frustrated. They're impatient. They're angry. They complain. By the way, if you ever want to see your sin, listen to your words. Matthew 12 Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Nothing will expose your sin like listening to your words. It's amazing. If you ever don't feel like a sinner, now most of us don't have that problem, but if you're struggling to think, I'm a pretty good person, listen to your words. Let me tell you what, I'm going to give you a test. For the next 24 hours, you ready? If you want to write this down, it'd be good, but if you don't, that's fine. Just remember it. For the next 24 hours, do not complain about anything. Do not grumble. Don't say anything negative about anybody else. Don't gossip. Don't shade the truth. And positively, Always give thanks. Always give praise to God. Always build up other people. Always speak encouragement into every situation. Always tell the truth. Go ahead, just do that. 
you won't make it to lunch. Well, you may make it to lunch because you're sitting there quietly right now. But then remember, Jesus said, and Paul said, and Proverbs says, as we think, so it's true. So Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother in your heart or your sister, you've actually committed murder. If you've thought anything lustful, you've actually committed adultery. So if you actually think you're doing well with your words or you're actually not saying anything, Jesus says, examine your thoughts. My point is, all of us are hearing waltz music all the time. So, because the people complained against God and against Moses, God sent venomous serpents. Now, this is so critical because this is, this is going to help you understand the spiritual life. This is going to give you the answer to the questions you may have wrestled with writing down an answer to. What is the spiritual life? How do I know I'm walking in the Spirit? What does it mean to abide in Christ? <clears throat> God sends real snakes. Okay, this is real time and space. This is a real place, real desert, real rocks. Let the painting help you imagine the situation. Notice that the snakes aren't just coming out from the rocks. Notice they're falling from heaven. How frightening would that be? For someone like me, it would be absolute torture. Venomous snakes falling from heaven. And by the way, these are what are called carpet vipers, uh, most likely in the, in the area, and they are absolutely deadly. Like, there's no escape. Like, making an X with a knife and sucking up doesn't work. In America, we have the Boy Scouts, a Boy Scout blood-sucking kit, not going to work. Anti-venom, you could have an IV of anti-venom, it's not going to work. There's nothing, wiping off the snakes, not going to work. Real snakes, real fangs, real venom, real pain, real death. This is time and space. This is historical. This is not myth. God says to Moses, fashion a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Listen, this is, this is key right here. You with me? If anyone looks at the bronze serpent in faith, it's not mechanical, right? It's not mechanical, just look. It's looking, trusting in the promise of God. If you look, you will live. Now, if you have been able to follow me on the physical realm, you now understand the Spirit-filled life. When they looked to the bronze serpent, trusting in the promise of God, this is key right here, supernatural power was released and activated from heaven. And physical venom was neutralized and they lived. Are you with me? On the physical realm, it's quite simple to understand. 
real poison, fatal bites, look according to the promise of God, that look of faith released and activated from heaven real supernatural power. And that supernatural power neutralized physical venom so the people lived. Every day, we are bitten afresh with the poison of sin. It might be in a relationship. It might be an area of brokenness and sinfulness in our own lives that is revealed by Scripture. It might be a circumstance or a situation that exposes and even bubbles up our sin. By the way, for those of you who are married, and actually those of you who are not but might be soon, do you realize that one of God's purposes in marriage, and oh, by the way, children, is actually to expose our sin so that we'd see our need for Christ? It's actually to reveal we've been bitten afresh by the serpent of sin so that we would have no other recourse but to look to Christ. By the way, that will transform your marriage. Because you know what happens in marriages? People try to fix each other. People try to change the other person to make their life work. No. God sovereignly chose your spouse. See, again, God's either sovereign or He's not, folks. God sovereignly chose your spouse. You married the right person for maybe the wrong reasons, but God chose your spouse from eternity past. He not only chose your spouse so that that person would complete you, that person would complement you. Listen to this now. God chose your spouse because only that spouse will expose things in your life that no one else would have. Had you not married that person, there would have been areas of brokenness and sinfulness in your life that would never have been exposed. But this person in particular is exposing things in your life, and you think it's about you changing them. And God is saying, no, that's Walt music in your life. It's the bite of the serpent that I want you to acknowledge, and I want you to look to Christ, and I want you to experience supernatural transforming power as it is activated through that look of faith. So, here's the waltz in Numbers 21. The first thing the people said was, we have sinned. First thing they said, we have sinned. So, you, you glance at your sin and you repent. Now, why do I say glance? Because the second point is you gaze at Christ and believe. Because of personalities, because of baggage in our own lives, because of woundedness, because of how we've been taught, the families we've been brought up in, the way we were parenting, way we were parented, every single one of us is heavy-footed in one of the steps of the waltz. 
Every one of us. If I were to sit down with you over tea or coffee, by asking you a few questions, I could discern where you're heavy-footed. We're either heavy-footed, we have a tendency to get stuck in the repent step. Some of us have a tendency, not very many, by, by the way, some of us, very rare, have a tendency to get stuck in the belief step of the waltz. And many of us, including me, have a tendency to get stuck in the fight step of the waltz. Okay, you can tell if someone's heavy-footed in the fight step of the waltz because they're always trying harder. They're the high achievers. They're the type A personalities. Well, that is me to a T, right? So I am heavy-footed in the fight step of the waltz. By the way, if you don't know where you're heavy-footed, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Or if you're not married, ask a close friend. They'll tell you where you're heavy-footed. So we, we glance at our sin and gaze upon Christ. We glance at our sin because it's so easy to get stuck in our sin. Look, the, the waltz is not a one-step. It's not one, 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 right? It's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But heavy-footed repenters tend to get stuck in the repent step. So all they see is their sin all the time. They forget that they're to move on to the belief step, and as a result, they get discouraged. They feel defeated. Maybe you're like that. Are you incredibly introspective when it comes to your sin? Do you tend to get stuck focusing on your sin all the time? You're heavy-footed in the repent step. No, you glance at your sin and you gaze upon Christ. The Puritans put it this way. For every one look at your sin, gaze ten times as long upon Jesus and His finished work. Well, if you do that, it can only be encouraging to see your sin. I mean, it's never encouraging to see your sin. But if you see your sin and you gaze ten times as long upon Christ, no matter how many times you see your sin, you're never going to get stuck in discouragement. Because repentance is going to lead you to a fresh glimpse of Christ. So what's it mean to repent? It means to confess. It means to acknowledge. The first step of growth is always repentance. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first word of the gospel is Repentance. So the gospel always leads to humility because it's always calling us to repentance. Repentance isn't something that bad Christians do. Repentance is the normal Christian life. We'll talk more about that in the next session. Look, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. See, we actually are not precise when we talk about grace sometimes. Grace is unmerited, yes. Grace is undeserved. <sighs> it's really not unconditional. I mean, I just gave you the condition. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's the beauty. As Tim Keller says, the only condition for grace is need. Like, you don't have to work it up. The only condition for grace is need. 
God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So we acknowledge our sin and repent. We glance at our sin and repent. But repentance leads to the second step of the waltz, and that's believe. The look of faith releases and activates supernatural power. You know what one of the biggest problems is in the church today? We have de-supernaturalized the Christian life. I mean, that's what I had done. I thought the Christian life was still me being me, trying harder with a new set of values. And you know what? The world thinks that's what the Christian life is too. The world just thinks we're a bunch of moralists. And guess what? In many cases, we are. We're just a bunch of moralists. Christianity has absolutely nothing to do with moralism. Christianity has to do with a living, vibrant, supernatural, transforming relationship with Jesus Christ, whereby we experience the activated power of the Spirit from on high when we look in faith just like the Israelites experienced supernatural power when they were bitten physically by snakes. People, if you understand what happened in the wilderness with physical venom, you understand the Spirit-filled life. Repent, believe, and fight is the Spirit-filled life. How do you know you're, if you're filled with the Spirit? Are you living in repentance, faith, and fighting the good fight of faith? How do you know you're embodying in Christ? Are you repenting regularly of your sin? Are you looking to Christ continually? And are you stepping out in new obedience? That is the Spirit-filled life. That is abiding in Christ. And we don't talk about it enough. So people know they're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. They have no idea what it means. People are called to walk in the Spirit. They have no idea what it means. People are called to abide in Christ. They have no idea what it means. Now, there are two elements to the belief step of the waltz. The one element we call affirmation. And what we mean by that is as you repent of your sin, you don't fall into self-condemnation. You don't fall into self-loathing. You don't fall into despair. You immediately affirm your justified standing, and your adopted status. When you sin, watch me now, God does not do this. Why? Because that's what he did to Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, God the Father did this. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, because you have their sin on you. And all of my disappointment and all of my wrath and all of my anger is being directed toward you right now. So that when your people sin, my posture is only ever this toward them. Because your obedient life 
is what has won that posture for everybody who is in you. So you affirm your justified standing. You affirm your adopted status. You affirm that God's posture toward you hasn't changed. And then we call the appropriation step. We affirm in belief and we appropriate. What does it mean to appropriate? It means to take for yourself that which God has promised you. So at the place of your repentance, you gaze upon Christ and you trust in a supernatural release and activation of power from on high, just the way the Israelites trusted that God would neutralize physical venom. Christians look at Christ and trust and believe that God will do what He said. Listen, do not look for experience. Do not look for some feeling or emotion. It may not be there. You trust the promise. Just like the Israelites trusted and God acted. They may not have felt any different, but the poison was neutralized. We repent, we believe, we affirm, we appropriate, and then we fight. What does it mean to fight? Look, you know how to do that. If one thing the church has done in our day, it's taught Christians how to fight the good fight of faith. Read your Bible. Pray. Worship. Fellowship. Go to church. Practice Bible memorization. Take care of the poor. Feed the hungry. Engage in evangelism. Those are all the fight step of the waltz. You don't need very much instruction on the fight step of the waltz because most churches obsess on what Christians are supposed to do. Now, please hear me. I am not minimizing that. I was talking to a dear Christian friend yesterday. Evangelicalism is not wrong in what they're saying. They're wrong in what they leave unsaid. And what they leave unsaid is the gospel. The gospel isn't something unbelievers believe to become Christians only. It's what Christians believe to experience the supernatural life. So, do you see Numbers 21? Do you see how this waltz works? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. God exposes my sin through a circumstance, through a relationship, through a situation. Numbers 21, we have sinned acknowledge my sin. I don't get stuck there. I go to the belief step. Right at the place of my sin, they affirm God's posture toward me hasn't changed. That's what keeps me from despair and discouragement and condemnation and self-loathing. And I appropriate the power of the Spirit at the place where I'm repenting of my sin. And I trust that just like God sent power to neutralize physical venom, He's going to send the power of the Spirit, the power of Christ to help me overcome sin. And then I'm going to step out in new obedience. It's not Nike Christianity anymore. It's not just do it. It's gospel Christianity. Now do it. I'm going to show a brief clip from the Chosen series. Are you all familiar with that? Uh, it's, it's something that, it's one of the best things I've ever seen uh, on the life of Christ and the 12 disciples whom He chose. 
Uh, this is from episode 7 of, of season 1, and it's all on Numbers 21. Actually, what it's really about is John 3 and Nicodemus, but he refers back to Numbers 21 just like John 3 does. And it's a, it's a look, it takes some liberties because it gets into a conversation between uh, Moses and Joshua that we really don't know existed, but it's certainly not far-fetched. Now, Moses is going to refer in this to uh, Meribah. Meribah was the place where God told Moses to speak to the rock, and it bubbled up sin in Moses because he was frustrated with the people, and he strikes the rock instead of speaks to it. And you know what happened? God said, because you did that, you didn't treat me as holy, you, you'll never go into the promised land. Remember what I said earlier, that sin has consequences? God will never turn his back, but don't think there's not going to be consequences. Playing with sin is like playing with venomous snakes. I don't know if you're playing with sin right now, but in the area of sexuality, in the area of dishonesty, sin has consequences. So Moses says, I learned a lesson at Meribah. I will never question God again. Whatever he tells me to do, even if I don't understand it, I'm going to do it. Joshua is freaking out. Joshua's like, this is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. You're going to put a snake on a pole. Why would you do something so foolish? And you're going to hear this conversation, and it's going to beautifully remind us of the waltz. So, The Chosen, Episode 7 of season one. <clears throat> Joshua, how many more in the night? Some 300, sir. Where will you bury them? Men are trying to dig a trench, but the ground is hard and rough. With respect, Moses, my concern is not for the dead, but for the dying. Hundreds fall by the day, and for every serpent we kill, another ten appear. Maybe we should leave the bodies here, in this tent. At the rate people are dying, there would not be enough room, even if we stacked them to the top. Then we'll have to leave and find someplace else. Not leaving anytime soon. Too many people are sick and cannot walk. After today, the only Hebrews too sick to walk will be those who choose to remain so. Is there medicine in that bronze? You told the people that you would ask God to forgive their rebellion, to heal their serpent wounds. I did. Then why are you hiding in a tent? It wasn't my idea, Joshua. That is a pagan symbol. You did not ask him if you were sure? Maybe you misunderstood him. I've learned to do what he says without questioning. You remember what happened at Meribah. Just to be sure, we could send a messenger to Iziongip or beg for aid. That Poe. Hand me that Poe. 
and people will say it is a cruel joke. Let them say that. Help me understand. None of this makes any sense. How do you explain the Red Sea? The man in the coil? The pillar of fire? Joshua, any Israelite who looks upon this bronze serpent and believes in the power of Adonai will be healed. It's an act of faith. Not reason. Engaging in the waltz won't fix you, but it will change your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Help us to comprehend what your gospel means to us as Christians. Lord, we know what it means for unbelievers. Help us to apply it to our lives daily as we walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.